Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I'm the host of the Regenaissance podcast. And today, alongside me, I have Stefan Van Vliet. Thank you for joining, Stefan. Thank you so much, uh, Ryan, for having me. So to get started, um, I know I, was, I mentioned this right before I, I hit record. So far, I've only been talking to farmers and ranchers, and I want to paint the full picture of all of agriculture and the food system, but then also why I'm so thrilled for this particular episode is kind of getting more into the details, um, for example, of grass-fed, grain-fed. Um, so I guess before getting started, if you can just tell the audience um, a little bit about yourself and how it correlates with agriculture and just food overall. So yeah, so I'm an assistant professor of uh, nutrition in the Center for Human Nutrition Studies, uh, affiliated with Utah State University. Uh, a lot of our work that we're doing is really at the nexus of agriculture and human health, uh, studying the basic question, do more sustainable agriculture production practices also benefit animal and human health? And what is the relationship between uh, those? So we do a variety of, of systems research where we're looking at the sort of the, the question that we often hear from farmers is, does healthy soils equal healthy plants? equal healthy animals, equal healthy humans. Um, while intuitively that, that hypothesis makes sense, uh, perhaps, uh, there's not a lot of research in, in that area. So that's really what we, we started on a few years ago to see, do these more sustainable production, production practices that could be rotational grazing of livestock, integrated crop livestock systems, uh, silvopastoralism, where you integrate trees with agriculture, um, multi-cropping, if you look at uh, just yeah, cropping systems exclusively, do all those things that contribute to soil health and, and what we think are better environmental practices. Do they have a beneficial effect to the foods that we consume? And does it increase the uh, vitamins and minerals and, and antioxidants in those foods? So on that topic um, of just the research you've been conducting the past couple of years of how does it affect the, the good soil and just that whole entire system, going to the food that we we consume i'm just curious what have been some i know it's kind of a vague question but i guess if you could just talk about the research that you've been doing the last couple of years and um is there just high level things that you'd be able to share with that absolutely yeah we've done a series of studies in livestock in uh cattle and bison also chicken and well, generally what we find here is when animals are grazing pasture uh and they are rotationally grazed, so they're not overgrazing the pasture. There's a wide variety of plants on the pasture, which we know has benefits to soil health. We see that it also has a benefit to uh, animal health and the nutritional composition of their meat. So, and animal health and nutrient density, I sincerely believe are, are related. A uh, healthier bison um, also seems to have more nutrient-rich meats, but that, that makes sense, of course, because uh, uh, the bison is accumulating these nutrients, uh, not for us to, uh, well, we can take nutritive value from it, but that's not the goal of the bison, of course, right? It's just to nourish itself and nourish itself. So you see a wide variety of beneficial compounds accumulating into its organs and its muscles. Uh, these are things such as omega-3 fatty acids um, that we see accumulating, especially when animals out, are out on forage, and especially uh, we see a key part for plant diversity. So. Let's say if we have a monoculture pasture with only one or two dominant species of plants, 
versus uh, a more polyculture pasture where there's maybe 100 plants or 50 plants that the animal can choose from. And we typically see that that has benefits. And it also has benefits uh, on, the, on the phytochemicals. And then you may ask, what the, what the hell are phytochemicals? Well, these are, these are plant secondary metabolites. These are antioxidants, or what people think of antioxidants, that's what they think of. It's our polyphenols, phenolic acids, flavonoids, flavanols, uh, terpenes. Well, we see those also get picked up from the forage and transferred into the meat. It's, it's not unlike a, a human. Um, if we eat a bunch of fruits and vegetables, we have more of these phenolics in our body. But if we can upcycle some of those through animal source foods as well, and some unique ones from forage that we otherwise could not consume, uh, we see that also there's a benefit uh, there for uh, uh, the nutrient density. And, and what we I feel comfortable saying at the moment is, is that it produces a healthier animal. But whether those phytochemicals from the meat also produce a healthier human, that is something we're uh, investigating now in, a, in, a, in multiple randomized controlled trials where we actually feed people meat from grass-fed and grain-fed animals. Hmm. So on the, in terms of just the nutrient density differences from, because there's also just the, even the different types of grain that's finished for, for cattle, that just widely varies, um, whether it just be the, the feedlots that people really talk about a lot, um, or just your customized feed for a smaller farm. Is, do you have clear-cut research on just the small changes like that? Because with each farm, it just can really vary with how they feed their animals and finish the, the cattle as well. Yeah, we do have research on that. We did a big project called the Beef Nutrient Density Project with uh, the BioNutrient Institute. And, and one of the things that we found out there is that there's a – as much as an 11 fold variation in beef samples in terms of uh, uh, phytochemicals and also omega-3 fatty acids. So certainly the best grass-fed samples we consider to be more nutrient dense in terms of phytochemicals and uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acids than the best grain-fed sample, but some of the grain-fed samples were higher than the, than the worst grass-fed sample for sure. And even amongst grain-fed, we see this tremendous variation. And uh, what we typically find is, is that um, if there's a greater proportion of forage or hay being fed to an animal, as opposed to like pure just grains or corn or distiller grain, that then the phytochemical richness goes up. And we've worked with some local uh, smaller feedlots as well, where they, for instance, feed 50% corn and 50% hay. We see that those are, are still pretty phytochemically rich. And But vice versa is true on, on grass-fed as well. If When animals are grazing more monoculture pastures and, and they're overgrazing it particularly, so they nibble on the plants that they like, but they leave the plants that they don't like. And as a result, the plants that they don't like take over. You end up with a more of a monoculture pasture. This is a simplified uh, idea, but um, just, to, just to, you know, sort of simplify it. That's what typically happens with a monoculture pasture. And what you then see also is that then the meat is also not as nutrient dense because the animals don't have this wide variety of plants to nourish itself. It's kind of like us. Think about it as we go to a cafeteria and we can select from 50 different foods. Or we can only select from three foods or in sort of a feedlot ration, the food is provided to us and we cannot select anything. Um, so that is some other work that we did, too. And this was in bison. This is we gave animals a free choice arrangement of uh, corn and hay. 
and the animals ate about 60, 55, 60% corn and, and the rest in hay. And what we saw there too is that actually the omega-6 to 3 ratio was still 3 in the feedlot finished animals, where it's usually about one and a half in uh, grass finished animals. So certainly what I'm trying to get after is, is that grass fed isn't grass fed and grain fed isn't grain fed either. There's, there's variation and some samples are better than others. Hmm. So on the topic of omega-3s and, and 6s, can you just explain its importance, especially directly to grain versus grass uh, fed and finished? Because I also remember at your talk at the National Bison Conference Association, you you had images of, I believe it was chicken and um, cattle and bison. And it was just really interesting to see the varieties of the ratios. But yeah, if you can just, before that, explain why that's important to, to know. Yeah, so it's important to know because the omega-6 to 3 ratio will be found is, is, a, is a good predictor. I mean, it indicates typically it's altered by the amount of omega-3s that are in there. So it's the... Uh, omega-6 is divided by the omega-3s and if it's one you have equal amounts of omega-6s and omega-3s and what we typically find is is that the amount of omega-6 between grain fat and grass fat is different and it's a little bit higher in the grain fat but it's really the absence of omega-3s in grain fat beef samples that drive that ratio to be high 8 to 1 10 to 1 meaning there's 10 times more omega-6s than there are omega-3s um, but it's because of the lack of omega-3s in, in, in grain-fed animals, or I should say it being much lower. Uh, in grass-fed samples, we typically see that uh, the samples that are sort of what I call the superstar farmers that use rotational grazing practices, that have plant-diverse pastures, they are all below 2 to 1, typically. Um, and about 1, 1. 1.5 to 1, somewhere 1 to 1. I mean, I don't know if it's... One to one is a lot healthier than two to one, but uh, uh, anyway, they have low ratios. And what we know, at least in sort of from population-based studies, is that we have a low omega-3 intake. Most of us, uh, especially compared to historical diets, the standard American diet, the omega-6 to three ratio is about uh, between fifteen to one and twenty to one. So we eat twenty times more omega sixes than we do omega threes. And again, that is mainly driven by our low intakes of omega threes. Now, when we eat, obviously you could argue, okay, fish or salmon is a good source of omega threes, which is absolutely true. And a better source than grass fed beef. But if we we probably eat grass fed or eat beef and chicken and pork more often than we eat salmon. So if those are richer in omega-3s, it can make a meaningful contribution. And then various studies have shown also, randomized controlled trials that we have good evidence of, is that when people eat grass-fed beef or pastured animal source foods in general, whether it be uh, omega-3 enriched chicken, omega-3 enriched pork, eggs, that the omega-3 in their blood goes up. Um, but typically, it remains similar when people are eating uh, feedlot-finished counterparts. So what that would suggest is, is that by eating uh, omega-3 enriched animal source foods from land mammals or, or uh, also chickens, which are obviously in pigs monogastrics, that this can increase the omega-3s in the blood. And omega-3s are uh, associated with a wide variety of, of health benefits, decreasing your risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease. Um, they have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. So if we can bring this up in the diet through the foods that we consume, I see it as a, as a good uh, uh, a good thing. So I have 
two questions with that. The first one would be, is there an ideal range that should we should have for omega threes and sixes? Because you were saying 15 to one or to 20 to one. Um, yeah, is there an ideal for that? And then also, the, I guess the two part question would be, as that range gets bigger and bigger, what are the negative health implications that come with that? Yeah, if you look at the omega-6 to 3 ratio, there's some suggestion that historic diets or more whole foods-based diets are more in the range of 5 to 1, 4 to 1, uh, omega-6 to omega-3. So, And again, that is driven by high levels of, of, of omega-3s so particularly. I mean, of course, there's always a substitution. So you end up with, uh, uh, obviously, if you consume more omega-3s, sources you're more li less likely to consume omega-6s or if you shift to a whole foods diet then typically uh, your omega-3 intake uh, goes up um, but the implications of, of, of having a higher ratio in, in our standard American diet is, is particularly that we have low amounts of omega-3s and yeah I mean this is associated with with a decrease with an increased risk of heart disease uh, other cardiovascular diseases uh, uh, diabetes uh, Alzheimer's disease. So, so again, if we can bring these levels up through the foods that we consume, and there's been some interesting modeling studies, especially out of the UK and Australia, where pastured animal source food consumption or grass-fed beef and lamb is more common, that has found that this con can contribute meaningfully to overall population-based intake. I mean, oftentimes people say, well, Stefan, um, Fish is a much better source of omega-3s or fatty fish. And I agree with that. Yeah, you know, you're not going to compare salmon to grass-fed beef, but it does seem like it can contribute meaningfully. So it's, it's in the bigger picture of, of, a, of a diet, right? I, I don't know about you, but I don't eat salmon every day. I eat salmon once or twice a week. But other nights I might eat some chicken or some beef or some pork. So if those can also contribute meaningfully to my overall omega-3 intake, if I do that for... 15, 20, 30 years, in theory, my chances of heart disease or Alzheimer's should be lower. So on the topic of, of heart disease and, and cancers, for the longest time, it's still, uh, I don't want to speak for everyone, but there is a generalization, especially with red meat that causes cancer, causes colon cancer, causes heart disease. For the longest time, I sheared away from specifically steak. I was vegan for two and a half years. Um, yeah, I was hoping that if you could just shed light on just the research of just red meat, especially from a nutritional standpoint, because there just seems to be so much conflicting information out there. And it's hard to for just the everyday citizen to with, without having to spend hours and hours of just digging um, to get to that information. And so, yeah, I was hoping that you could just shed light on the, the topic of red meat and that yeah it's a fascinating topic for sure because uh, this week red meat may give you cancer and next week it may be okay and the week after it might not be okay again right uh so it's super confusing for consumers and uh i i totally understand that and usually the devil's in the details because if you you know read the papers then it, it usually makes sense why or why that may not be the case if if, if there wasn't uh you know one thing for instance notice is, is bmi could be a potential confounder so if if it's been a extensively adjusted for that it usually lowers the relative risk uh, overall diet quality is another very important part eating red meat or eating a steak as part of a mediterranean diet is not the same thing as eating steak as part of a standard american diet uh, for sure 
um, and, and, and we know that from, from a variety of, of different angles. I mean, uh, and then also the interesting part is sort of the, the, the International Agency uh, uh, on uh, uh, Cancer Research. Um, when they released their report on red meat being a potential carcinogen, if you go to uh, page 167 uh, out of their report, it actually found that most of, that the association is mostly due to processed red meat, not unprocessed red meat. So, um, and even then, there's some nuances in there. Is that probably in, in cured salami for a year with just salt is not the same as a uh, uh, I don't I can't want to name, name brands here, but a uh, JD uh, uh, sausage, right? Um, so those those nuances matter. It has a bunch of nitrates in it and 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 other additives in it, and so. It is very confusing, but what, what various randomized control trials would suggest is that when you eat beef as part of a Mediterranean diet, whole diet, a DASH diet, and what are all these diets? These are all whole foods-based diet, rich in fruits and vegetables, uh, nuts, seeds, uh, low in ultra-processed foods. It does seem that in that case, red meat can be consumed uh, without adverse health effects. And at the same time, we also know that red meat can contribute meaningfully to various important nutrients in the diet, such as iron, zinc, B12. Uh, so sort of my viewpoint on this is that the overall, and what studies also suggest that the overall diet quality in which this art is consumed is a very important piece of it. The unfortunate part, I think of that, if you look at population-based studies and epidemiological associations is that a lot of people consume red meat as part of a standard Western diet, right? Rich in ultra processed foods. And maybe it can become problematic even then because we know from sort of uh, in vitro digestion work if that if you marinate your meat or you eat it with other plant matter, then some of those uh, potential carcinogenic compounds are reduced by 50%, 60%. So maybe there is something to it, but eating this as part of an overall healthy diet might help you get the good of red meat while limiting some of the, 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 the negative factors. So, um, so I, if you ask me from my interpretation of the literature is, is that when red meat is consumed as part of a overall healthy diet, I think you can eat steak a couple of times a week and uh, be, be perfectly fine. It's such a hot topic. And what I always found so fascinating with when people change their diets, whether it be going vegan or carnivore or other ones, usually the, the most common component is taking out ultra processed food. Because I always hear whenever I switched to vegan, I pretty much did that and I felt great. People switch to carnivore and they immediately feel great. And it seems to be the commonality is always taking out the ultra processed junk that causes all of this chronic inflammation. And that's why I always just find it fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you just mentioned that because there is so much nuance. And then on top of that, we're also, especially with COVID, um, just kind of just um, shoved down our throats to blindly trust science. I mean, that that term is just so thrown out there now is just trust science to where um, it's hard to go through the nuance to where now it doesn't make you even think to, to, to really dive deep into anything. Yeah. And, and, and the disagreements in science is completely normal. That's, that's always happened. There's, there's just, you know, collegial disagreement in science and we, you know, we always get it right. And, and there's also nuances to things. We learn things, right? 
Um, so, but I think that's also an important part is that when sort of lay public see scientists go back and forth, you kind of say, oh, these scientists, they can never, you know, agree on anything or, or they never get it right. But it's it's normal part of science to have disagreements on, on some things. And then, yeah, I mean, depending on who you ask, if you ask me, does red meat cause diabetes? I'd say, I, I doubt it. Uh, but if you ask maybe another scientist, you would say, yes, red meat causes diabetes, right? So uh, who's right? Uh, that's 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 a hard part to determine. I mean, obviously I think I'm right, but otherwise I wouldn't say it. But no, but I want to say there's nuances to it. And and the nuance being, I think, is, is that, uh, yeah, I think it comes back to a large part of is, is overall diet quality. The effects of single foods on health are rarely binary. They're rarely black and white. Um, like I said, if I eat red meat as part of a healthy diet, but I also consume three pounds of vegetables a day and a pound of fruit, and I consume less than 10% ultra-processed foods, it's unlikely to have the same health effects on me as it has on, on someone else. And, and we did a study like that where we actually were interested in, uh, well, I was mainly interested in feeding people ultra-processed foods versus, process, versus uh, whole foods at a similar caloric level. But one of the other parts we're interested also in is that, uh, you know, what if we do this in, in the context of uh, a daily red meat consumption? So we fed people red meat as part of a whole foods diet or an ultra-processed diet. Everyone on the whole foods diet got healthier. Their triglycerides dropped for 40% got back into a normal range. These, these were individuals that were only pre-diabetic or, or had elevated triglycerides. We got them a lot healthier in four weeks already, despite, quote unquote, eating red meat. Now, we didn't have a vegan control arm, so maybe it would have gotten even healthier. Who knows? But uh, uh, it did get, you know, triglycerides dropped from, uh, I think it was like 140, 150 to around 100. Um, the LDL cholesterol dropped, some of the inflammatory markers dropped, their glucose dropped. I attribute to the, that to the fact that they were eating red meat as part of a uh, healthier diet. The people that stayed on that were fed the standard American diet, their health didn't improve, didn't also didn't get worse because they were habitually consuming a standard American diet. And, and we try to match the amount of ultra processed foods, which was about two thirds. So, but, but my point being is, is that I think uh, the diet quality piece is, is so important, right? And it's, this is, comes back to the fact that, uh, yeah, the effects of single foods in an overall diet matter so much. I mean, in, in an extreme scenario, eating uh, two ounces of almonds a day is probably not going to extend your life with three years, no matter what uh, uh, some studies may, uh, may suggest, right? Uh, because if you eat almonds as part of a standard American diet, I don't think it will do, any, do much for your health, right? But if you eat part of a whole foods diet and you don't have almonds, but you consume something else, I think you're uh, you're 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 okay too. So it's it's bigger picture. Yeah, cool. No, that makes a lot of sense. And on the topic just of plant based and just animal based protein, I know you've done research on that as well. In in terms of the protein synthesis of of plant based versus animal based consumption. Um, yeah, I was hoping that you could just talk more about that as well, because again, I was vegan for two and a half years. The first question I would always be asked is, where do you get your protein? And that's obviously always just the main focal point of these discussions. And I would just love to hear yeah, your findings on that with, with um, soy and, and wheat, uh, plant-based proteins. Yeah, I think the, the answer to that question is a very simple one. At 
moderate to low doses of protein, so let's say 15 grams or so, 20 grams, there's a higher muscle anabolic response to uh, protein of animal origin versus protein of plant origin. Why is that the case? Because you get a higher overall essential amino acid profile. Um, when you go up to 30 grams, 40 grams, the difference between plant and animal sources become a wash. Because at that point you're ingesting so many amino, essential amino acids that the lower levels of leucine or lysine or methionine that are typically in plant sources, it doesn't matter anymore because you're just consuming enough of it. And, and what various studies have suggested is if you're consuming 1.6 gram per kilogram body weight, 1.8 gram per kilogram body weight, it doesn't matter whether, and you're lifting weights, it doesn't matter whether your protein is coming from predominantly plant-based sources or animal-based sources in terms of muscle gains, because you have similar uh, amounts of muscle gains because you're consuming just more than enough essential amino acids. So it's only at sort of these, these lower doses where you can detect the difference between plant and animal sourced uh, protein. But I think sort of the bigger picture of it is, and we did a comparison where we uh, compared a uh, plant burger, a popular plant burger with just a beef burger. And while these were matched for protein, while these were matched for many vitamins and minerals, we still found a 90% difference in metabolite abundance. So what, what that tells me is, is that, you know, and this is something that usually gets my, uh, uh, well, I would say blood boiling, but maybe a little bit, is that we've, we've dumped down foods, the protein and fat and carbs, but, you know, foods in a natural state probably provide thousands of compounds. And if we oversimplify, if we dumb down uh, beans and beef to protein, I think we're missing the point because you get a whole variety of other compounds with each of these food sources. And I think personally, if you ask me, I think there are benefits to eating both to get a complementary nutrition profile. Yeah. Cause I remember I, I actually have it pulled up. I I'm looking at it and I still <laughs> not, I've never heard of a lot of the words, but you have a new nutrient comparison of beef and plant-based alternative. And I'm assuming that's what you're mentioning too, with just uh, I'm hoping that you know that the, the chart I'm, I'm looking at, I just, there's so many of these that I've never heard of. And so I didn't know what is the significance of, of that? Because it's, it's showing the plant-based and there's a lot of differences in, in these. Yeah. I mean, the significance of that is, is that if you eat a plant burger and you, if you eat a meat burger, you get completely different, uh, nutrient profiles into your body. Yes, bigger, sort of like on, on top level, you get similar amounts of protein. Uh, but the other thousands of nutrients that are in food sources, those are going to be different. What's the impact of that long term? Not 100% sure. Uh, we do know that animal source foods are much richer in things such as taurine, answering, creatine, uh, which are amino acid peptides that have potential effects on our muscle, taurine has a role in nearly every cell. It's considered a conditionally essential amino acid. Um, so answering has been studied for potential neurological uh, benefits. So while these nutrients are not vital for life, it doesn't mean they're not important either. Um, so what is the impact on health long-term? I'm not 100% sure what that is. Um, or even multi-generational, but we do know that if you, uh, 
withdrawal taurine from a rat, <laughs> or you throw taurine on a, in a petri dish on a, on a cell line, is that it does impact metabolism. That that I'm pretty sure. Of. Um, so, to me personally, as as a nutrition scientist, it makes the most sense to include both plant and animal source foods because they provide very much different nutrients and probably taken together provide for an overall um, complementary profile where you're kind of trying to cover all your bases. That is what I think is, 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 is the best way to do that. So that's why it's sometimes frustrating when we get sort of uh, a, a uh, not, not that we are doing that here, but a lot of times we're in our social media, you get like this plant versus animal discussion. And I think we should have a plant and animal discussion. Hmm. I guess, can you, I know you're, you're talking about that a little bit, but can you just elaborate just a little bit more on that last part? You're, Cause that's interesting. I haven't, I've always been talking about plant versus animal because I even framed that question to you as that. Yeah. I mean, what I mean by that is that uh, plant foods provide very much different nutrients than animal source foods. Various plant phytochemicals uh, are higher in plant foods. Vitamin E is typically higher. Um, carotenoids are higher. So you get different nutrients that you get from plant foods. On the other hand, animal source foods, they provide individual or also unique nutrients. Answering, taurine, creatine, uh, typically higher source of, of, of certain vitamins, but other vitamins are maybe higher in plant foods. So my exclusive source of DHA and EPA, well, you could argue that algae, but is algae more close to a plant than it is to an animal? I mean, it's a different discussion. But the point being is, is that they're typically better sources of DHA and EPA, omega-3 fatty acids. But taken together, you have you get all these nutrients, right? And we know that there are certain nutrients in plant source foods that are very beneficial. We know that there are certain nutrients in animal source foods that are very beneficial. And we know that they're different from each source. So when you combine the two, I think as an omnivore, what humans are, you're playing it on the, on the safe side. And I think also that's the spectrum where most people seem to operate very well. Now, I think part of, of, of the human body is, and why it's so fascinating is, is that we can live on, seemingly people can live on an exclusive meat diet for a while. They can also live on an exclusive plant diet for a while. Clearly, it doesn't work for everyone, but what it means is that most of us operate very well on the spectrum of omnivory and can kind of shift uh, on, on that, but sort of on a population base, this, uh, yeah, excluding, you know, which you sometimes hear, I mean, no one's advocating obviously for, uh, um, taking, well, some people are, I guess, but most people are not advocating for taking all plant foods out of the diet. But when there's advocating or suggestions of like, well, we should probably stop eating animal source foods. I'm, I'm like, you know, for me, that, that becomes a little tricky. Just knowing about the nutrients that are in animal source foods and not in plant foods and, and vice versa. So that's, that's why I think the best discussion is, is that how can we balance the two and get sort of the best of both worlds? So for just, again, the general, just, uh, just citizen, uh, I guess I would call that how I'm trying to figure out how to best ask this question, how can they figure out what to trust whenever they read online and what they hear in terms of just nutrition overall? I mean, I know we've been talking about this, the whole topic, but 
again, there's just so much information, so many studies being pushed consistently. And like you were saying, one says eat red meat the next week. It's saying it's causing cancer. The next one, it's destroying the planet. How do they, how can we vet that and just try to, especially for parents that just want what's best for their kids and their family? Yeah, I mean, I, I, in some minds, I say use common sense, I think, right? I think that's, that's what it boils down to. If it's, uh, uh, and, and then think about this in like, what is the overall diet in which this is consumed? And then sometimes it's hard because you have to go through the details and then figure out that uh, lasagna was also classified as red meat or something like that, right? Or, or burgers and fries or things like that, right? Yeah, then obviously uh, that's not what we're, we're talking about here. Um, but my point being is, is that if you, unless you have a very extreme diet where all you consume is red meat or all you consume is, 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 is plants or something like that, right? But typically take a step back and think about this in the context of, of an overall diet. And um, I think it can just, it can become very confusing, but honestly, I mean, nutrition in ways is very simple. It's, it's, you know, figure out your certain food preferences, but if you eat some, you know, eggs and some stir fried veggies in the morning and have some milk, uh, you eat some, uh, I don't know, you know, again, whole foods for lunch and you have some, maybe a piece of meat for, for, for dinner with some, some veggies and some potatoes. Yeah, you're perfectly fine, I think, right? It's just eating a variety of different foods and a dietary diverse diet and low in ultra processed foods. And I think if most people did that, yeah, I think we'd have much lower rates of metabolic disease. And within that, you can kind of, you know, find your own way. If you are like, well, I don't like consuming red meat more than once a week, then don't do it. But if you feel like you like to consume it two times a week, three times a week, or, or you know, yeah, you'll find your your own food preferences is, uh, is, is my point. And, and I think when you get more attuned with your body, uh, yeah, you start to enjoy whole foods more. You maybe start to crave uh, sort of uh, ultra processed foods less. And, and yeah, that's, that's, I think, something also that is, uh, that is very key to realize. Because I think most people have a, sort of a good idea of what healthy eating is. It's just so... Uh, goddamn hard because <laughs> the way we set up our, our food uh, supply, right? Or, or our environment. If I drive home, I pass uh, 30 fast food restaurants and uh, maybe in one of them, I can only get get healthy foods. Now, I, for me personally, it's like, um, I mean, in college, I ate more ultra processed foods. I mean, you know, or as a kid. Now it's, it doesn't really entice me anymore and i think uh, a lot of people go through a phase like that it's always interesting and i would love to study this more because when i talk to people about it that sort of made the shift to whole foods they're like yeah the first you know six weeks i may have these cravings but now i kind of like enjoy just a cup of oatmeal and uh, with some strawberries um but, but my point being here is, is that yeah when you see studies like that take be, be critical take them with a little bit of a grain of salt and and, and kind of step back and think like okay uh, what is the overall diet in which this was consumed? And I, and I think that's uh, that, that's okay. But yeah, maybe you won't figure that out until you read the study. You brought up a lot of great points. One is definitely trying to be in tune with your body because all of our bodies are different. And if you can really listen to your body um, digest well and just leaning into that, because I've had gut issues past couple of years um just just a lot stems from a lot of different things 
but I would just really start to become in tune with what I eat. And whenever I stick to those certain foods, it's by far the best I ever feel. And then if I were to eat, say, uh, ultra processed meal for dinner, it, because my gut still isn't healed, it would just make me feel horrendous for that night. And then waking up the next day with brain fog. Um, yeah, it's, it's just wild. And then also just, especially because like when you're saying driving everywhere, you just see those red signs everywhere of just restaurants, just all the commercials, everything is just thrown at us. Not on top of that, the, the ultra processed food completely alters our brain chemistry to make you want more of that. Cause I worked on a farm for two months. I don't think I, I craved any type of garbage like that the whole time I was there, not a single time. And it didn't take very long to, to change that. And I mean, that's one of the big reasons why I started a bridge um, because once you actually have that food from a farm and ranch and actually have those meals, it is so delicious. You feel great. Um, but it is tough to stick with it whenever you just have all the different stresses, work stress. I mean, there's just so much that goes into our yep. life now, especially in America, that it is very hard to, to stick with that. Um, so, yeah, I guess my next question, it's, it's just on the topic of you conducting the research studies. How do you go about that process of starting one and... Yeah, I'm just curious, how, how do you start all of that? Uh, you need to find good people, because it's definitely not me doing it. It's a, it's a whole team of, uh, of, of, of research, but uh, so it starts with that, I think, uh, having uh, passionate people. Um, but yeah, we, we usually go about research study. First thing is finding funding. So and funding is hard, always. Uh, I mean, most of the federal pay rates are probably below 10%. So that means if 100 people send in a grant, only 10 people get it. Um, so that's the hard part. So you get a lot of rejections, um, but that's, uh, that's okay. That's part of it. Uh, so once you acquire the research funding, and this is going to be usually a combination, like most of our, our research is funded through a combination of federal funds. So this is USDA funding and then also industry funds. And oftentimes these are for the same studies. So, uh, I know people take, take, uh, issue with industry funds and uh, we can go into it if, if, if you want, but, uh, I'm definitely not driving a Ferrari or going on a yacht vacations with my industry money. In fact, it almost always goes to research and turning around every dime. But uh, that's not not what the people on social media think. Um, but no, I don't, I don't drive a Ferrari for my uh, big, big ag money. Um, but yeah, you acquire the funding, you go through the IRB process. Um, IRB is Institutional Review Board, so they make sure that uh, you uh, don't... Uh, you safe for people to participate, you're open about the study, transparent about it, they can quit at any time. Our studies are usually involved blood draws, urine uh, collections, stool collections, and then uh, quality of life uh, questionnaires as well. Then you conduct a study. Usually studies take a long time. So if you run a randomized controlled trial, it can easily take a year because you cannot really run. Now we did a study over two years, uh, but we fed people all their foods for 14 weeks. And these were uh, Nearly, uh, I think it was 36 people uh, total, and you have to weigh out every food for them to the gram. So that was a major uh, uh, study that we did. We we're actually studying foods from regenerative agriculture versus conventional agriculture. So the entire diet came from regenerative agriculture versus the entire diet came from uh, uh, conventional agriculture. These were animal source foods from pasture, obviously, uh, fruits and vegetables grown in more agroecological ways versus just your non organic produce and, and meat from the store. 
Um, then the analysis begins because you then end up with, I don't know, a couple of hundred blood samples, urine samples. Uh, we run those on a mass spec. What a mass spec can do is it can very, uh, in a very detailed manner, identify certain compounds. So that's the metabolomics paper that you referred to. We use mass spec for that. Mass spec is also used for drug testing in athletes. It's just, you know, you can, each compound has a unique mass. Well, it's not 100% true, but they sort of have a somewhat unique fingerprint. And, and you can measure that on a, on a mass spec. That takes a lot of work to do as well. Uh, and then you uh, write up the paper and then you submit it. And then six months later, you get peer reviews back. Then it goes through another round of peer reviews. So the short end of its inception to, uh, to when you publish, it usually takes four years or so, three, four years on, on these major studies. And uh, yeah, a lot, lots of involvement from, uh, from people. With the study on the conventional versus the regenerative agriculture, what has that process been like? And then any, I'm just curious to hear more about that as well. So what we found on that, like we have only preliminary results. Uh, but what we found was, is that if you switch, so the people that we recruit were middle-aged individuals at risk of metabolic disease. So their BMI is between 35 and uh, 25 and 35. They usually have some elevated glucose, some elevated triglycerides. If you eat foods from regenerative agriculture or conventional agriculture, we found that just switching to whole foods gets you 80, 90% of the way there, I'd say. Just ditching the standard American diet, start eating some fruits and vegetables and minimally processed animal source foods. We saw rapid improvements in health. People lost weight, their triglycerides dropped, their glucose dropped. Um, so does the regenerative agriculture have a benefit? I mean, one of the things that we're gonna look at is for instance, the fatty circulating fatty acid profiles. My guess would be is that those are gonna be a little bit higher in the, the ones on the regenerative diet, just because there's more omega-3s in the animal source foods. Probably pesticide load is a little lower. Um, not something we could pick up in terms of like, if you look at just, you know, your blood work that you get done at the doctor, your cholesterol, glucose, uh, triglycerides, those we couldn't pick up any differences between groups. But if you have more omega-3s in your blood or you have maybe less pesticides you're exposed to over a lifetime, if you do so for 30 years, maybe that's a health benefit, I'm not sure. But uh, uh, I do, what I do know is, is that uh, just eating whole foods gets you 80 or 90% of the way there. and and. Uh, it doesn't really matter as much then if bigger picture you zoom out it doesn't matter as much if you get it from conventional or, or, or regenerative agriculture it's not to say that there's not some benefits to it but uh, yeah it's also clearly not day and night <laughs> that's interesting so the last question I have is just I know you mentioned funding um, because you'll look at certain studies and the findings for example like red meat or just going back to the whole um, fat debate that happened and then switching to low fat for everything and just seeing the funding for, for those studies. Uh, I'm trying to form that question too. Because it just seems like there'd be a lot of bias whenever you see the who funds the papers and just thinking that from my perspective, it just seems like they're just trying to confirm their own bias and then they just, it's just a... Um, they're in their own little bubble of just confirmation bias and using the same funding for that. Are, I guess from your experience, how problematic is that? 
I think it's less problematic as people think. I think I think most scientists can be trusted. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, not altering data or based on the on the on the funding. But it is true to your point. It's just that if you are part of the soybean board or the National Cattlemen's Association, right? You're you're probably more likely to fund a study with red meat as part of a healthy diet and look at its health effects than you are studying red meat as part of an ultra-processed diet, right? So studies can sometimes be set up so that it, it's more likely to find favorable findings. Yes, that, 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 that is true. Um, but you can still generate interesting data from that, for sure. I mean, you know, you're not going to... Uh, a soy board is on, and vice versa, a soy board is unlikely to fund a, 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 ultra, a sort of... I'm not talking about soy milk, even though it's an ultra-processed food, but I'm talking about something I, you know, that's uh, a Twinkie that it is uh, hydrogenated soybean oil in it, right? And then studies health benefits. We know that's not going to look great for a soy board. And the same thing as eating burgers and fries, it's not going to look great for a National Cattlemen's Association. So there is some in like the study setup. Yeah, we have to be that realistic. Um, but I also at the same time think there's sort of a sentiment on social media is that, you know, academics are paid industry scientists that is not the case i mean there's a lot of safeguards in the university too uh typically most uh, industry partners uh, players don't even pay salary for uh, for us i mean my salary comes from the, the university um it goes exclusively to research funds we have to disclose all of those things um so is there the risk yeah, and then there also becomes down to the ethics of the researcher right i mean um it is presenting the findings the way they are. Like, let me give you one example. During uh, my postdoc at WashU, we did a study. This was funded by industry where we looked at CLA and, and vitamin D, a product that contained that. We did a study for eight weeks, didn't do anything for muscle protein synthesis. Uh, findings were what they were. Went back to the, the funder and said, yeah, it, it doesn't really work. And of course, they, they were interested in funding a larger study and, and that didn't happen, of course, right? So it's also just telling the data what it is. Um, I think that's the key part. And, and you have to make sure that, uh, yeah, you don't go into a situation where, where you lose yourself. But it's, that's the same thing with, with any profession, right? There's always uh, cheaters or rotten apples uh, in, in, in any profession. But sort of this idea that, uh, yeah, academics are paid industry scientists, that is, that is really, uh, which you sometimes read online, that, that's, that's really not, not how it works at all. No, uh, we don't have, we, typically we believe in the cost, just like, you know, uh, when we're studying uh, pasture animal source foods, it's because of an interest and, 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 and you try to stay objective with that, but we're also humans, right? Uh, so, but our idea about this, why we want to study this is just because we are hopefully improve the environmental factors, the animal welfare factors, the healthfulness of the food. A vegan who argues about improving the environment, right? It comes from the same place. What we disagree upon is probably the route towards it. But that does not mean that, because I think that maybe animal agriculture has a role in its food system, that I think that because I'm on a payroll by uh, industry, right? And um, yeah, that is, and, and anyone in academia would know that that is the case. And I feel like it's more folks outside of academia that have these wild ideas. Um, you know, I mean, I, 
be, be open about it. It's like, you know, we, we oftentimes make a model salary. We work our butts off and uh, we're definitely not uh, uh, becoming uh, rich from, uh, from, from industry funding, which almost exclusively goes to uh, uh, um, research dollars. And, and, you know, and at the same time, and this is always the kind of the silly part, right? In any other industry, let's say if I worked in the automobile industry and I came up with this, Converter that lowered emissions by 50%. And if I then didn't work with industry, people say, oh, you're, you're a fool, Stefan. Why are you not working with industry? But if we study how to improve animal welfare and animal health and then work with industry, I mean, why would we not work with industry, right? Because you're trying to improve things. And, and uh, if anything, it's, I'd say it's the other way around. It's where people think you're being influenced by industry, but usually it's industry coming to you and you're influencing industry by the research that you do. I think that's really all I, I have on my end. Um, yeah, this was great, Stefan. Thank you so much for joining. I guess for all the listeners that, because I'll be following along, especially with the, as the continued research that you're doing with the food production, but the conventional and, and regenerative, because that's really interesting. Um, yeah, where could all the listeners find you and if they want to listen and learn more? So online, uh, Twitter at FanfleetPhD is my handle. And then... Um... If you just Google my name, you can find uh, yeah, a variety of also. If you're interested in, in going through some slides, I have plenty of webinars online too that I've given over uh, over time where I actually talk through some of the some of our research. Um, if you type in uh, my Google, if you search for my Google Scholar profile online, again, just type in my name in Google Scholar, you'll find all the papers we've written. We make it a priority to make all of these open access. So unfortunately, that means usually... Uh, Open access fees are anywhere from like uh, two to five thousand uh, dollars, but that means that at least the public can read it, right? Um, so we try to always do that because otherwise, it, there's no good if just uh, a few of your colleagues read the paper and uh, uh, the public can read it. Um, and then, yeah, if you type my name into YouTube, you'll find a variety of, uh, of, of videos as well, and then and potentially other podcasts as well. So uh, I think those are the best avenues. Perfect. And I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Thank you again, Stefan. Thanks so much for the, for the great interview. I really appreciate it. You can find the full video on YouTube at The Renaissance.